Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Sancaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers one, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited with the guests that we have today. So our guest started his journey as an entrepreneur at 13 years of age. I mean, I think that you're gonna find the story, you know, behind our guest today, remarkable, building, scaling, financing, you name it, all the above, growing from corporate to the startup world and 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 really helping people out and leveling the field on real estate. I think that you're going to find quite inspiring the, the journey of our guest today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ryan Williams. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. So originally born in Louisiana and raised there. So so give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? You know, life growing up was, um, you know, all in all, was filled with some highs and some lows. Um, I'd say highs for me were you know, frankly, just having an amazing family around me, support system, you know, community was relatively tight knit. Lows were, you know, I didn't always have a leg up. Most times had a leg down in, in many ways. Um, you know, I grew up working class, grew up um, with a lot of love around me uh, from my family, uh, but with a community that didn't have really high expectations, things that I'd ultimately be able to do. And so um, I always leaned on my faith and my family. And, uh, and frankly, that's what propelled me to the heights that I'm at today. And, uh, and the fact that people believed in me, maybe saw more of me than I saw in myself, which is really how and why I got my entrepreneurial journey started, which has been, frankly, the catalyst to, you know, my, um, uh, my, uh, my roles today and a lot of the opportunities and blessings I've had today. And certainly when, when others saw problems, you saw solutions. And that's what happened when you were 13 years old. So what, what, what happened there? Well, you know, I grew up, I played sports, um, and, you know, this was uh, in the 90s when things like headbands and wristbands were still worn and still cool, and I liked wearing headbands and wristbands. Um, uh, I couldn't afford, though, the Nike or the Adidas or the Jordans, um, and so uh, I realized that, um, you know, first for myself, I wanted to find a more affordable product, uh, one that still was high quality, but where I didn't have to pay $20, you know, to put a headband on, um, and I realized that there are other people like myself who also wanted to have a sense of a pride in their apparel, but couldn't afford the big name brand. So I basically went to the wholesale garment district near me at the time and bought headbands and wristbands for you know 50 cents a dollar a pop for myself initially, but then ultimately for friends and teammates. I personalized them using a local embroiderer 
um, and started selling personalized headbands and wristbands. And, you know, it became a, a business that I started again, initially out of a pain challenge and the like, but um, ultimately built um, to a place that uh, was uh, was solutions oriented and focused. And I was just so fortunate that uh, I got a lot of great mentors um, who uh, heard of me and learned of me through the growth of the business, as well as um, through the um, network that I be, was able to create through organizations like the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship uh, or NIFTY. Um, and those mentors, again, saw more of me than I saw myself and encouraged me to think bigger, to go further, uh, to run faster. And uh, because of their support, I ended up ultimately uh, scaling that business, um, you know, making a good amount of money from the business itself, but learning some life lessons uh, that uh, have taken me uh, pretty far so far. So it sounds like you were well off, you know, you understood uh, how you were able to, to not only bring a solution, but also monetize it. So how do you end up, uh, especially being in a, in a community, as you were saying that, you know, it was not surrounded by money all over the place. I mean, obviously you were saying working class, uh, but at that point, I mean, you were able to really understand how to make money and how to make a living out of it. So what led you into, hey, I want to go to Harvard. I mean, I'm sure that you were probably the only one, the only kid in the block that, that went to Harvard. So, so what led you there? What ultimately led me to, to uh, go to Harvard um, was, you know, mentors who said, you know, why not apply and see if you can get in? The worst they can do is say no. And you've already beat the odds in so many ways. And I you know, was able to find these mentors through some nonprofits um, and some organizations that focused on uh, helping underserved youth and giving them an opportunity to build businesses or to learn uh, in different ways. And so it was really these mentors who said, apply, you know, if, uh, you want you can get your fees waived for your applications, given, you know, just where, where um, you know, uh, just frankly, because I didn't have any money. And so um, they, they encouraged me to do it. You know, I've never been shy. I've always been fearless and uh, always said, look, if you know, there's an opportunity to beat the odds. You know, I'm going to take my chances. And Harvard saw, uh, I guess, an entrepreneur in me and someone who had done well academically uh, and uh, and accepted me. I applied regular decision, didn't go through any of the other, you know, programming or otherwise. And like I mentioned, you know, it was a playground of resources when I got there. And, uh, and that was a huge inflection point in my journey. And a lot of people there, you know, very privileged, right, with different backgrounds the elite. Uh, and I know that, you know, for you, that was a culture shock, but how do you, you know, just, just, just quiet, you know, those noises, those voices uh, that maybe, you know, like uh, we're having you at a disadvantage or whatever that was to just say, you know what, I'm just going to keep it moving. You know, it's a great point. And, you know, for me, what I've always done is, is try to rely on my faith and my family and and I always look to, um, you know, I focus on the future, but I never forget about the past or, um, you know, my history or my family's history. And, you know, I try to put things in a context and, and say, like, look, you know, the fact that I am where I am now means that somebody sacrificed way more than I ever could sacrifice. You know, the fact that I am where I am now means that, you know, someone along the way in my ancestry beat the odds in, in ways that, um, you know, I probably can't even fathom. And so, you know, for me to allow a naysayer or someone who, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, believe that could be successful to, to, to stop me would be a disservice to them and be a disservice to those that came before me. I also think that there is just a reality too. as an entrepreneur, you have to maintain a level of optimism and hope. You have to believe you can beat the odds because building a business, 
you know, in our case, lasting as a business and growing for, for eight years consecutively is uh, is rare. And it's something that, you know, if you, if you were to, you were a betting man, you'd say, you know, nine times out of 10 when it happened. And so when you think about that reality and the fact that to build something and to grow something and to, to do something that's never been done before, you have to be unconventional and beat the odds. Um, then it builds a resiliency muscle, you know, it builds a view of you and belief that you can prosper in the face of adversity. Um, and it, it builds a, a view and a belief that uh, anything is possible. Um, and so for me, it's always been about hearkening back to those that came before me, realizing that, you know, I beat the odds before um, and uh, and making sure I know that no matter how challenging the circumstances are, um, I have people I can rely on. I have people I can, you know, go to. And, you know, I have enough confidence in myself that I'll figure out whatever the challenge or issue is, um, or at least be resourceful enough to know who to ask to figure it out. Now, in your case, uh, being there in, in Harvard, that gave you exposure to many different things. But one of them, you know, was definitely real estate. When you were building this kind of like boot camp for, 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 there, for, for the universe there, for the ecosystem there, that led you into the asset class of real estate. So what was that? journey like i mean how how did real estate come knocking to you you know it, it was uh it was again one of those things where you know i guess the universe all uh, uh conspired to, to to bring me to the place where i started my own real estate business um and so much of this was, was timing and the like but basically in my freshman year of college i started an organization called veritas financial group and i started this organization to help students who didn't come from wealthy, privileged backgrounds uh, to have a, an opportunity to have a level playing field and understanding of finance and financial services. You know, I realized we had all these resources at Harvard, but, you know, most kids uh, who didn't come from those backgrounds, most kids had no idea how to get started in finance. And no, they didn't even know what investment banking meant, but they were still going to be thrown into investment banking interviews. So long story short, as I built uh, a set of financial curriculums, um, I, I asked after a bunch of cold calling some Harvard Business School professors to teach the curriculums to undergraduates, which is the first time that it had ever happened before. I had MBA students mentor. And, um, you know, one of the tracks in this program that I ultimately started was real estate. I got to know some professors from the business school and real estate space, folks like Arthur Siegel, um, who had built a long career there. And the more I learned about it, the more I recognized, you know, it was an incredibly lucrative sector, um, but it was so opaque. And it was frankly, so closed in. And that stuck with me. It stuck with me to the point where my sophomore year, which was during the subprime credit crisis, I was able to actually be presented for the first time with the opportunity to buy real estate. Um, and this came to me uh, through my roommate and one of my best friend's um, neighborhoods. You know, he grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, Southwest Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, there were a lot of foreclosed homes up and down the street and a lot of people who were underwater on their homes. And trying to build back their futures and frankly didn't have much of a chance to do so because of a lot of predatory lending, subprime lending. And so I said, look, I, I, I have all these kids and uh, classmates who have a lot more money than I do. Why not try to raise some money to start buying some of these homes, but not buying them just to make money, but buy them to enable these communities to be stabilized. And so ultimately, that's what I did. I started buying single family homes throughout Atlanta, raising money from classmates, renting them out, um, back to the community members, our owners, when I could. And, um, and I built this business to the point where, you know, it became a, a profit driver for me personally. Um, but it was really that trajectory and journey of the first business and organization I started up 
opening my eyes to a, a world that previously was closed for me, real estate. And then, you know, acting on this recognition that real estate was a lucrative asset class when I was presented with an opportunity that many others may have seen as a challenge, you know, distress and financial loss and, you know, people's wealth being wiped out. To me, um, you know, I said, well, how can we turn this into a good thing? How can I make this uh, something where, you know, people have another shot at the American dream and home ownership versus, you know, uh, kind of uh, being miring in your, 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 uh, your, your challenges and your adversity? So in this case, I mean, it sounds like, um, again, you know, really pushing the entrepreneurial, you know, side that you have in you, uh, seeing, you know, solutions where everyone else is, is, is encountering problems. But in your case, I mean, after graduating from Harvard, you know, rather than taking that on full time and, and going at it, you know, you, you ventured into, into corporate America, you know, on the side, you know, sort of speak. And, and you went to Goldman Sachs, you know, investment banking. And then after that, you went to Blackstone Private Equity. But I think that in this case, you've been able to get, like, I would say the two best backgrounds in order to be a, a very powerful entrepreneur uh, and, and, and full of uh, and resourceful entrepreneur. Because I find that on the investment banking side, you get to see all these different companies. You get to see what works, what doesn't. And then on the private equity side, you get to develop that pattern recognition as well. So how do you think that, uh, the experience in, in, in both institutions has prepared you enough to really have an edge when it comes to analyzing and approaching problems now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, really what, what um, they did was they credentialized me. Um, you know, they, they taught me how to be rigorous in everything I did. And they taught me the importance of human capital and surrounding myself with, you know, uh, incredible people, both, you know, culturally and then also functionally and technically. And so um, beyond the credentializing, what I would say is at Goldman, I got this breadth of exposure to some of the fastest growing companies, um, but I also got to operate as an entrepreneur within that institution. And what I mean is, you know, I got to work with partners, you know, and probably was punching above my weight. Um, I got to work on sort of new initiatives and new projects, but I got to understand how Goldman went about serving their clients and building financial models. And that all prepared me ultimately to be on the principal side at Blackstone you know, where I was able to apply those analytical skills and that entrepreneurial drive to invest um, and to take a principal orientation and to understand risk and to understand risk and reward and upside and how to best balance the two. So what I would say is that there was a perfect, you know, set of experiences for me in terms of understanding both client service, but also principal investing and building value and managing risk. But what it also did was it enabled me to you know, build this network that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to create and go to, frankly, some of these folks as actual investors in my future venture. Um, the final thing I'd just say about the experiences is in each, I still was an entrepreneur within those institutions. And that's something that I've never let go of. That's kind of, again, where I think my, my superpowers are is helping find opportunities and, you know, frankly, figuring out how some institutions can reinvent themselves and how large organizations can can reinvent themselves and going from zero to one. And I had these huge platforms where I could do things like, you know, help build out and scale some of the most powerful businesses we built at Blackstone, whether it was the, the real estate, private equity, single family home uh, ventures, or the multifamily business we were standing up. Um, and so I've never lost that entrepreneurial drive, uh, and, but I've tried to round out that experience that, you know, it can be a little rough around the edges sometimes with these institutional quote unquote validators. 
Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So at what point at Blackstone do you realize it's time to, to get going in your, in your entrepreneurial career full-time? Pretty early, pretty early on. And frankly, I went there recognizing that I had a lot to learn and it was one of the best places where I could learn about investing and about spaces like real estate. Um, but you know, I've always been driven by uh, helping promote uh, self-determination amongst the underserved, help leveling the playing field and create solutions, you know, that are personal um, or solutions that are uh, are based off of addressing problems that are personal to me. And so when I got to Blackstone, I knew that I was going to see, you know, so much real estate and so much wealth being created. What I didn't fully appreciate is for how few people it was being created for. And so pretty quickly, I saw that, you know, sovereign wealth funds and large institutions were the largest uh, investors in our business and in our funds. Um, and the average individual had little to no way to get access to these asset classes. So to me, it became, you know, do I want to continue to, you know, make the, the 0.1% of the 0.1% more wealthy? Or do I want to start building a business um, that will start with an institutional type approach, but ultimately level the playing field? you know, make investing in real estate as easy as it is to buy and sell products on something like Amazon and help, frankly, create a more inclusive global economy where individuals could invest like institutions. So I knew pretty quickly that's what I wanted to do and build. The question was how. The how is what took me a little bit longer. Um, and I spent, you know, probably more time than I should have, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the how while I was still working at Blackstone. So then what triggered uh, giving the notice and taking the leap of faith? A few things. Number one, you know, in 2012, which is a couple of years before I'd really gotten my feet wet at Blackstone, uh, the Jobs Act was was passed, and the Jobs Act is what ultimately allowed you know individuals to um, invest in private placements in a more liberal and open manner. And so when that happened, I realized that you know this whole idea of um, wouldn't say crowdfunding, but you know uh, funding for the masses was something that was actually a lot more palatable. And, you know, my idea of being able to let individuals invest like institutions could actually be brought to life. 
So that was one uh, dynamic. And, you know, you can't control that because that was initially political in nature. The second was, um, you know, I started seeing that, you know, real estate investing and real estate asset class was um, was still relatively cheap. And, um, you know, what I wanted to do was make sure that unlike 2008, 2009, individuals could actually participate in the recovery that I saw was happening and the growth of the space that would be happening in subsequent years. And so that almost increased the urgency of leaving to build Cadre and to, to scale this marketplace and platform we've built. Um, and then I think the third thing was I was you know, making the rounds with different investors. And you know, I had about 10 people who ultimately said they'd back me, they believed in me. Um, and, uh, and it was really those three dynamics that all converged in 2014 that led me to make the leap. And, you know, when I left, people laughed at me. They thought I was crazy. They said, you know, why would you leave this place? You're, you're making all this money. You know, this is a crazy idea of uh, democratizing access to real estate, letting more people invest, you know, just take the, the, the conventional path. But my view has always been you know, the only way to get unconventional outcomes and returns is to do unconventional things, to take unconventional risks, um, and to see the world, you know, in different ways and try to elevate above what everybody else is doing. Um, so that, you know, kind of was more of a philosophical driver for me. And I said, you know, I'm, I've never been like the pack, you know, why start now? So what ended up being the business model of Cadre? How do you guys make money? So we are a, a platform, technology-driven platform that enables people to invest in either individual real estate buildings or in portfolios. Um, so what we've done is we've created a, a technology interface where anyone can go on, see commercial real estate properties that will generate return and yield. Our returns historically have been north of 17.5% every year. Um, and they are able to now invest you know, in smaller stakes in these buildings. So you could basically own a $25,000 stake in a property or a $5,000 stake in an individual property. You get yield, you get return. Um, and basically, we let people build their own diversified portfolios of real estate. Um, we have about $5 billion worth of real estate volume on the platform to date. We have thousands of customers and users. And the way we make money are transaction-based fees. So every time we list a new property uh, for people to invest in, uh, we uh, make money when that property is closed and listed. We have recurring fees. So every every year, you know, we have an asset management reporting fee because we provide real-time updates. And we have a secondary market fee because we've launched the industry's first secondary marketplace. So when people can now sell their stakes in these buildings to other users on our platform as well. And we charge a transaction-based fee as well. We have a performance fee. So whenever we outperform, which fortunately has been the norm, um, our team receives a small percentage of the profits or promote, uh, but our biggest fees come from our asset management, recurring transaction fees, and secondary market fees. And I mean, obviously, a different Ryan and a different network, you know, post Harvard and Goldman Sachs and Blackstone. I mean, incredible networks now that you've been able to, 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 to build. So I guess, what was that process of activating those networks, whether it was to gain access to talent, you know, for, for the employees that you were really, and the team that you were assembling to, for example, even the, the funding that you were raising. I mean, how is mm -hmm. the process of activating, you know, those networks? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. And I, I've always said that, um, you know, the, the, the output is never greater than the input. The work that, that it takes to 
you know, raise the amount of capital that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to raise or hire the number of people, you know, it's a low conversion game, you know, for, for every, you know, hundred investors I speak with, um, that say, uh, no, you might get one or two yeses. And you just have to know that that's the case. And, you know, that, uh, the vast majority of amazing ideas were not initially viewed as amazing ideas or otherwise. And, right. And maintaining that level of confidence can be tough, but it's but it's also just the reality of you know being an entrepreneur when you do go out and uh, decide to to fuel growth and raise money if that's the path you choose. Um, and so the path and the cha- it's been tough. But some of the things that I've done um, that I think have helped activating the network. Number one, um, I always make sure it's symbiotic. You know, I always make sure that there's something that I can give in addition to asking for. Um, I found that that's the best way to build relationships and partnerships. The best way you know, to help educate as well some of the investors who might not understand the space and sector. So, you know, if I can offer some insight into real estate for a VC who might not know it, um, you know, that's going to help illuminate and educate and inform them. Um, and then maybe they'll also invest as well because they like the idea. But th- there's a level of credibility and trust you can build and just a level of, of balance with those kinds of relationships and, uh, and the like. The second thing I would say beyond just making sure it's symbiotic is um, follow up. You know, I, I always make sure I follow up with every single person that I speak with or meet with, good, bad, or otherwise, regardless of how the meeting goes. Make sure I have reminders to check in with people, whether it's, you know, talent, maybe I try to hire someone and they said right now is not the right time. Well, I'll ping them again in a few months. And, you know, most people don't do that. And I think that goes a long way in showing you care, it goes a long way in showing you respect other folks. And um, that's been, I think, critical for, for me cultivating my network and Again, all it takes is one person to say, you know what, I'm going to give this guy a shot and I'm going to spend the time with this person or, you know, I'm going to hear them out. And, um, and I felt like if I can, you know, at least just get my foot in the door, um, then I have a good shot then of closing if it's a candidate, um, or an investor converting them. So just keeping kind of those relationships uh, ongoing has been critical for me. Um, and then I think the final thing is like people want to know that you are ambitious and you have the big vision, you have big ideas, uh, you're going to swing for the fences. Um, you know, the, the people I've met with and that have invested in me and joined my company have been people who see that, you know, real estate's one of the biggest asset classes in the world. And, you know, there's almost an audacity to try to reinvent it that uh, appeals to a very uh, specific type of person or investor. And so I've always tried to make sure I'm thinking bigger and bigger, more ambitious, um, and, uh, and that I have a clear plan to execute or a clear plan to help someone grow if it's talent that I'm looking to bring under the, uh, the umbrella. And, and so far, I mean, how, how much capital have you guys been able to raise? So at the corporate level, we've raised about $150 million of corporate capital. And, uh, you know, on our platform, we've, we've invested uh, more than a billion dollars worth of capital into real estate properties to date. That's incredible. Uh, obviously, investors like Andreessen Horowitz and other tier one investors, which is impressive. So, you are alluding to it now with the um, size, you know, and, 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 and kind of like the scope of the operation that you guys, you know, have built. I mean, anything else that you can share in terms of numbers, like maybe like number of employees or anything else on the operation side? Yeah, so we're, we're about 105 employees. Um, so we're still relatively lean, which, you know, I've been focused on by design. We have a couple of offices around the country. You know, New York's where I spend most of my time. Um, we do believe that, you know, there will be more opportunity for distributed remote work. So we're in that camp, but we also believe in the value of being in person. Um, in terms of, 
you know, other numbers in growth, um, you know, for the business itself, as I mentioned, about five billion worth of real estate property value on the platform. Um, we just saw, um, you know, more than 75% top line growth year over year in terms of revenue. Um, our business has profitable unit economics, which we've just grown into and achieved. And, uh, and in terms of scale for the business itself, um, you know, we've been uh, really focused on building out our customer base. We've got almost 40,000 investor accounts on our platform, customer accounts on our platform, have a number of partners, folks like Ford Foundation, Goldman Sachs, Harvard, who many of whom have invested on our platform itself uh, and, you know, been users in addition to the thousands of individuals. So we're the first platform that's been able to bring together large scale institutions and individuals under one umbrella and let them coexist and let them invest in world-class real estate together. And in terms of um, vision, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Ryan, and you wake up in a world where the vision of cadre is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I mean, the world is, is one in which, you know, alternative investments are no longer alternative for billions of individuals. It's a world where, you know, billions of people can invest in, an array of alternative properties like real estate or sectors like real estate as easily as they can invest in stocks or equities on any of the big platforms out today. It's a world where people have truly healthy financial portfolios where, you know, instead of the average individual having two or three or 4% of their holdings in alternatives, you know, they actually have three to four times that amount in um, so that they have a hedge against inflation so that they have, you know, the ability to diversify outside of stocks, bonds and crypto. And so they can have more vibrant financial futures um, and where they understand the space, too, because it's not enough just to invest and have access. You want people to be empowered to understand why does real estate grow this way? Why is it a good hedge against inflation? Why is you know depreciation so important? And those are all the benefits of our platform and what we try to offer investors. But we want to be the catalyst to usher in that new era of true inclusive financial economics. Now, imagine, Ryan, that I put you into a time machine and mm -hmm. I bring you back in time. Mm -hmm. And I bring you back in time where you're able to have a sit down with maybe that 13 year old, that 13 year old Ryan that uh, was, you know, thinking about selling those wristbands and yeah. headbands and, you know, launching that first operation. And imagine you were able to sit down and give that younger Ryan one piece of advice before mm -hmm. launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? One piece of advice that I would give to uh, to a younger Ryan, a 13-year-old Ryan, is um, make sure that you are surrounding yourself with partners, um, and partners can be employees, it can be investors that are aligned with your values, that are aligned with you know your beliefs, um, and uh, that um, are aligned with your aspirations. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to build a number of different businesses and organizations and have some amazing partners and that's made all the difference. And I've seen people who have not, and that's also made all the difference in their businesses, you know, organizations not succeeding. Um, but I'm someone who generally trusts people and, you know, looks to the positive. Uh, and, um, and I've had experiences with employees where that backfired on me. Um, and that's largely been a function of, not them pulling the wool over my eyes, but me not, um, you know, believing and trusting my gut and instinct about principles and values. Um, and that, you know, are, are, do we all, are we selfless? You know, are we fearless? Do we keep a high degree of, of excellence and quality in all that we do? You know, are, are we going to, 
never sacrifice on ethics or integrity, right? And so it's those kinds of values and principles that you can, you know, talk to people and interview for and test for. Um, but sometimes uh, I have seen those become deprioritized because somebody has an amazing resume or, you know, they have the right skill set for what you're looking for. Uh, and that's, you know, backfired on me every time. And I've seen it backfire on others as well. So I would tell my, my younger the younger Ryan, that it's all about people you surround yourself with, but specifically the values and the principles that they uphold. Um, and uh, that sometimes it's better, you know, to forego an opportunity if you're not going to be working alongside people that share your principles, values, or otherwise. I love it. So, Ryan, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Best way for them to reach out and say hi is to go to cadre.com contact us. I look at every single Zendesk inbound message we get. Um, as I mentioned, we are actively growing our customer base. We want more people to participate in private real estate opportunities and they can log in and uh, join our platform um, as well as reach out to me to, uh, to discuss uh, the benefits of real estate ownership, how it's helped me personally and how it's helped thousands of others. Amazing. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It's been a, an honor to have you. Likewise, it's been an honor to be on and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you to everyone listening. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.